This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 28th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week, the COVID-19 landscape in the United States has begun to change. All adults are now eligible for the vaccine, and there's increasing availability, pretty wide availability. So today, let's go through some advice for clinicians when they talk to their patients. The NEJM website has guidance written by Paul Sachs, and the CDC website also has excellent suggestions. So let's look at amplifying the recommendations from those sources, starting with the current epidemic in this country. While the number of doses of vaccines has been climbing, the decline in case rates hasn't been so dramatic. In fact, in some places, the number of cases has been increasing rather than falling. And Michigan, for example, has seen an increase in hospitalizations for severe COVID-19. How can we reconcile increased vaccine uptake with the relatively slow fall in these numbers? The fact is, Steve, that there's still a fair amount of disease out there. But overall, I think the picture is very encouraging. We know that the vaccine works. As we said before, we only need to look at Israel, where more than half the population has been vaccinated. And the daily number of cases there has fallen from over 10,000 to just a few hundred, and it stayed down. So I strongly suspect that we're moving in the right direction. That being said, there are several other forces at play. First, there has been the emergence of variant viruses, either those that have arisen overseas or new homegrown viral variants, many of which might transmit more easily. There's little evidence so far that the vaccines that we're using in the US aren't active against these variants, but they are likely causing more disease than would have happened with the original viral strain. Second, many places are loosening restrictions at the same time that these variants are emerging. So it's simple math. The more exposure, the more transmission will occur. And most people have only recently been able to access vaccines. That means that many of them aren't completely protected. They haven't either gotten their second dose of an mRNA vaccine, or they're not long enough out from the time of their vaccination with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And so as time goes by, these people will have increasing levels of protection. Finally, when we look at overall rates for the country, there's very wide variation within individual communities. The idea that there's one overall number we have to hit to establish herd immunity is probably simplistic. Everyone has a different exposure risk given their context, and that's going to change from place to place. There isn't perfect mixing in the population, so there are likely to continue to be pockets of high transmission for a while. Eric, I think you highlight several of the important features that we have to think carefully about. There's been much discussion, as you noted, about vaccine-elicited immunity against variant viruses that are emerging. And this is not surprising, because as we develop an immune response, that is selective pressure on the virus, the virus evolves in response to that. That doesn't mean that the vaccine-elicited immunity doesn't protect either for acquisition, for illness, for serious illness. But these are features that are actively being studied and have to be better understood. And as we know, not all viral variants are equal in those parameters. Some increase transmissibility, but not necessarily disease or immune escape. I think an important feature of that is it's important to ensure that all of us receive the full vaccine series that have been studied for the different regimens. So we have the strongest possible immune response. 
And that's important that not only to get your first shot to start the series, but also to complete the series. And that can sometimes be logistically burdensome, but is very important. We're also going to have to monitor the durability of the immune response elicited by the vaccines. And we've seen data emerge showing how long the immune response lasts, at least six months, likely a year or longer. And this will help inform us if boosters or other maneuvers are needed to enhance the immune response and the protection. And then I think there's really an important issue that we discussed with Dr. Del Rio a few weeks ago about uptake and building trust in communities and building access in those communities. So not only must we have enough supply so that all of our communities could have vaccine if they wanted, but we need to make sure we get into the many different communities across the country and hear their concerns and address them and enable access so that everyone can access a vaccine and therefore we can decrease transmission and uh, subsequent complications. Now, of course, the key part of that is that people need to be vaccinated. And clearly, as you've discussed before, there's a benefit to society as more and more people get vaccinated. It reduces the risk of transmission and therefore reduces everyone else's risk. But I think that as an individual physician, it's important to emphasize the personal benefit of being vaccinated. The risks are very low, very, very low associated with vaccination itself. And the risk of disease is still reasonably high and accompanying morbidity of that disease. So I think it still remains in almost everyone's interest to get vaccinated. And as you say, Eric, it's for the individual person, there is benefit to be vaccinated, but also to their family and their immediate community. And that's something that we all hear stories of how society is opening, sporting events, school activities, other things that need to happen are happening again. Yet we have not yet been able to fully vaccinate the younger members of society. Those over 16, hopefully will be able to age de-escalate soon. But the issue of our high school students, our college students, our 20 to 30 year olds, getting them all vaccinated so they're not bringing it home to their family and friends as well as they can benefit. And Steve, I think that may be also one of the reasons we're seeing numbers go up is that our initial vaccination strategy, when we had very limited supply, were to the members of society who are at greatest risk for severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And as we are now able to offer vaccine to everyone older than 16, that takes time to implement. However, our change in behavior occurs almost immediately, and so we have to catch up getting vaccinations to all of our community members while we are increasing how we interact with each other. You mentioned the loosening of restrictions, and just today the CDC revised its recommendations on masking. So how has our view of risk changed over the course of the epidemic? Well, I think it's worth thinking about each individual activity because there's a gradient of risk. And not all that nuance makes it into the guidelines. So I'll take one way of looking at risk by where you are. Let's start with the hospital. Hospitalized patients are coughing and being subjected to various procedures, which run the risk of generating aerosols. In addition, the surfaces in patients' rooms and procedure rooms can become very heavily contaminated. 
So there are at least a few routes of transmission that are possible, droplets, aerosols, and fomites. The recommendation for PPE and for seeing patients and for doing procedures haven't really changed throughout the epidemic and shouldn't change in the near future. On the other extreme is the outdoors. Aerosols can never transmit efficiently in the open air and droplets are very restricted by the distance that they can travel. So being outside is by far the safest place to be to limit transmission of COVID-19 or any other airborne infection for that matter. It's probably rare for transmission to occur without prolonged and close contact with someone. Indoors is a different story. Under normal circumstances, it's likely that droplets are most likely to transmit disease with aerosols and fomites being less important. This means that surgical or homemade masks remain very important indoors and it's still true that avoiding indoor contact with others is by far the best way to limit transmission. I mean, I think, Eric, you sort of point out the gradient, and there are key factors in the gradient of risk. The physical space you are in, how crowded you are with others for how much time, and the risk of those others being infected and infectious at that time. And there are modulators for each of those factors, as you point out, indoor, outdoor, small number of individuals, large number of individuals, vaccinated individuals versus unvaccinated, and then physical barriers like mask wearing. And it's not a one size fits all. They're gradient for each of these features. And we have to think carefully as we interact with others, how we minimize the risk by maximizing the protective elements of these different features. And I'm optimistic that with a very high uptake of vaccination, which I hope will continue, and with the warming weather so we can spend a lot more time outdoors, that those factors will play very favorably in our gaining control and really decreasing transmission. But it will take some time to see the impact of those elements. I think it is important as well for physicians to communicate the fact that there's no black and white rule. Transmission can occur under unusual circumstances. And at the same time, they're unusual. They're very rare. So everyone is taking different sorts of risks. It's not as if transmission can never occur outdoors, but it's exceedingly rare if people are distanced from one another. On the other hand, it's not as if transmission will always occur indoors, even from an infected individual. It depends very much on, as you say, Lindsay, the source, how transmissible that person is, how much virus they're shedding and how much they're coughing and such. So there are no absolutes. That being said, people should take reasonable precautions, whether they've been vaccinated or not, because the vaccines are very good, but they're not perfect. But it speaks to also how we can educate each other, not only our patients, but our community in that for those friends who I want to spend time with, if they are vaccinated, as well as myself, it becomes easier for us to spend time and not necessarily wear masks in open space. And that is something we have to think about and think about how we educate each other versus colleagues and friends who are unvaccinated and potentially exposed and therefore at higher risk of being infectious. And that's something where we can educate each other about how to decrease risk for our friend groups as well as our other groups that we interact with. 
well, there's another incentive to getting vaccinated. You might get together with Lindsay. Eric, we're supposed to encourage vaccination. So you're suggesting today, and you've said many times in the past, that vaccines are the key to ending this epidemic. A question that's been raised is about the indications for vaccination. Who should not be vaccinated? That's a pretty easy one. Virtually everyone should be vaccinated. Vaccines are highly effective, awfully safe. And that means that the risk-benefit calculation is the same for almost everyone. There are a few exceptions, but they're temporary at best. First, people who have an active acute illness are probably better off waiting before getting the vaccine. This is true for any vaccine. It's not particular for the COVID-19 vaccines because of a couple concerns. One is that the immune response might not be as good. And the immediate symptoms that some people develop after vaccination, the reactogenicity, might confuse the picture with their underlying illness. But once these folks are better, they should get vaccinated. And the vaccine seems safe and effective in those with chronic illnesses. So that is not a contraindication to vaccination. The second group where there's some question is pregnant women. As we discussed with Dr. Walensky last week, thus far, all the data suggests that vaccines are safe in pregnancy. However, the numbers are small and some women may choose to wait until after delivery to receive their vaccine. That being said, many women are opting for vaccines now, including many of our physician colleagues who are pregnant. Finally, there are those with a known allergy to the vaccine, but that's a bit complicated because these vaccines don't really share many components with other vaccines or drugs. So it's almost impossible to determine who will have an allergy. And true allergies have proven to be quite rare. Nevertheless, those who do have a severe allergic reaction, such as anaphylaxis, after their first dose of an mRNA vaccine should avoid getting that same vaccine again. The CDC is recommending that these sorts of patients might be offered the J&J vaccine for a second dose. This seems like a safe strategy, although I don't think it's been tested at all. One of the most common questions raised by patients is about immunocompromising conditions. None of the vaccines that are currently available contain a virus that's capable of replicating. So all should be safe in immunocompromised individuals. And there's a pretty good track record. There is the question of how well the vaccine will work. Most evidence suggests that the vaccines work pretty well in most individuals though certain types of immune compromise, such as B-cell disorders or the use of B-cell depleting therapies, do seem to be particularly problematic for obtaining a good response. There's no blanket recommendation for people taking immunosuppressive drugs or with disorders, and therefore patients who have these should consult their physicians who can consider it on a case-by-case basis. But in general, because the risk is low, whatever benefit you can derive is a positive, and most of these patients should be receiving vaccines. So, Steve, I like the way you asked the question. Previously, we focused so much on who should be vaccinated because we had limited supply and there were those at highest risk. But I think you've asked the proper question. Now that we have supply, we really should be thinking about who shouldn't be. And Eric, as you laid it out, it's very limited groups of individuals. And the real issue is how do we make sure that everyone who should be, which is nearly all of us, have access to vaccine as easily as possible with as few barriers. And that is what is ongoing. 
Some of the issues you raised, Eric, are how can we improve the vaccine's effectiveness and efficacy, such as in individuals with weakened immune systems. But there, it's not an issue of safety concern. It's how do we enable the vaccine response to be as strong as possible. So there's no reason not to scale up to almost every community. I would say that this is the most common question that I receive, and I suspect that it's yours as well, Lindsay. What about my pre-existing conditions? Should they prevent me from getting vaccine? My advice for physicians who are counseling these patients is largely to start with the idea that almost everyone should be getting the vaccine, even if you're looking at individual cases, because I think when you do the calculus, it's almost always going to come out that given the safety of these vaccines, that people should be getting them. I mean, the other side of that discussion that we are having with our colleagues is how well did it work? How long will it work in myself or my patients? And there the data are being generated. And so hopefully over the next months, we'll get more information about the strength of the immune response and their durability of that immune response in different key populations, particularly our patients on immunosuppressive medications, such as with rheumatologic conditions, autoimmune illnesses, undergoing cancer therapy, or on other types of immunosuppressive medications. But the data will emerge and hopefully will guide us as to boosting or other maneuvers will help enhance immunity in those populations. So where do we stand on the answer to that question? Will we need boosters? It's an interesting question, and I think an unanswered one at this point, Steve. There has been some talk, including from manufacturers, that there might be booster required. Now, boosting addresses two very different issues. One is the variance. Should people receive a booster which is tuned so that it will produce an immune response that is better for some of the variant viruses? The answer to that is, we have no idea yet. The current vaccines, certainly the ones that we're using in the US, do produce reasonable immune responses to the variant viruses. And thus far, it seems that they are producing a clinical response so that they are effective, perhaps slightly less effective, but still effective against the common variants that are out there today. That's not to say that there won't be new variants for which a booster might be required. The second question is, how long does immunity last? The question that Lindsay brought up. And the answer is, we have no idea. But I will say that we don't ordinarily boost just for a better immune response. We don't ordinarily boost on an annual basis, as people have raised. The flu vaccine is an unusual example. And people tend to think of that because it produces another respiratory infection. But we boost for that because there's a new viral variant every year, and that viral variant is not well protected against by the previous year's vaccine. In fact, the vaccine is not nearly as good at producing protection as the COVID-19 vaccines are. So I don't think that there's any a priori reason to think that we will need booster doses to maintain adequate levels of immunity, though we'll see, and we can't really predict on the basis of the few months of experience we have right now. I mean, Steve, I think part of the complexity here is we are, as a community, watching science with every experiment. And therefore, the data are not complete for us to fully understand 
the challenges. You know, how long does vaccine immunity last? Every three months, we're getting an update from individuals who were in the first cohorts who were vaccinated early to middle of last year. Those data are very important, very informative, but they don't answer the key questions which you raise, which is who needs a booster? Because perhaps a lower level of immunity is just as protective. Perhaps when the immunity, such as neutralizing antibody, is not detectable, you are still protected because you have an amnestic response. Perhaps we need a serial boosters to keep a high level of immunity. These are things we hopefully will better understand over the next three to six months as we do the science. And unfortunately, by seeing the data in real time, not with the complete story, it can appear confusing. But this is actually the scientific process. And it wouldn't surprise me that once individuals have that initial immune response, they're in a different position in response to SARS-CoV-2 than people are truly seronaive. But we'll have to see the data to determine how much protection you have for variants, for example, once you've been vaccinated against the original strains. But I'm optimistic that that will have a significant amount of protection, albeit imperfect in some. Backing up to initial vaccination, where do we stand with children and adolescents under 16? We're still waiting for the data to come in. There's been a trial that's been completed but not reported out in individuals between ages 12 and 16. And the press releases say that it was safe and that the immune responses that were produced were good. My guess is that there is not a clinical endpoint for those studies, but we'll see. And trials are underway for younger children. As we've said before, protecting younger children is more of a public health issue than a medical issue. When we think about the risk-benefit analysis for younger children, on one hand, they tend to not have such severe reactions to the vaccine initially. So the initial reactogenic risk, which is relatively small in anyone, is even smaller in children oftentimes. On the other hand, disease is not that bad in children. And yet, for other respiratory infections, children are an important part of the transmission chain. Now, thus far, the evidence that children are playing a critical part in COVID-19 transmission isn't very good. Although transmission can occur in schools, they don't seem to be a particular nidus for outbreaks. But that being said, it would help us from a public health standpoint for control of the epidemic when we're able to vaccinate kids. And it would help families who are concerned about transmission within the family to more susceptible individuals from their own children. One of the difficulties that physicians face is that their patients are getting information from a number of sources of varying reliability, including their own local governments. How would you advise physicians to talk to their patients? That's a tough one, Steve, and I'm not sure I have an answer for it. I think as with all medical decisions, we want to help empower patients to make decisions for themselves. But that often means disagreeing with what they've heard, whether it's from the internet or their governor or from family members or friends. My own feeling is that everyone's issues are very different and that we have to listen to patients carefully and understand their concerns to individually help them make good decisions. I don't think there's any one right way to do that. I mean, I think it's really important for us as healthcare providers 
to understand our patients and to give them the best information that makes sense from the communities that they come from. And that different communities think through these medical interventions differently. And we really, as Eric, you suggest, we really have to listen and talk with our patients in a way that makes sense to them, giving them the best possible information so they can make the best decisions for themselves and their families. I think there are some good resources out there, and some of them are tailored toward an individual patient, someone particularly from their own community, and those communities vary a lot. As you know, there are objections across the political spectrum, across different races and ethnicities, and I think it's worth looking for the kinds of sources that are reliable that people from a specific community can acknowledge as real. And honestly, one of the most trusted sources is their own doctor. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.